yesterday, the uh, the Polish Hall had their uh, their monthly dinner here, and you can tell when they have their monthly dinner because there are usually flowers in the back or some other decorations uh, that came, like the flowers up here, and. Um, they, they hired a, a, a musician a, to come in and play for kids. Well, this is a, an ironic hiring because I don't think there's anybody who's under the age of 70 that's associated with the, uh, the Polish Hall. So um, I don't know if their hope is to you know, get some more children in or whatnot, but they extended the invitation to us and then I extended it to uh, all of you. We, we showed up with a number of kids uh, here and, um, and it was a great scene. Uh, a number of our kids were here, and they had the musician had them doing hand motions. Well, everybody in the Polish hall was also doing the hand motions, along with the kids. And and I thought, you know what? Is this something that we should continue to do? Like, are we serving them? Are they serving us? They paid for the musician. How does this all whole thing work? Is it a a burden on us? And and as I was wrestling through that, it just occurred to me that it's a you know it's. A, it's a, a blessing that goes both ways, that, uh, that really when we act as a community, uh, we're, we're not just the sole source of blessing to others, because God's common grace uh, gives each of us gifts, whether we're in the church or not. And one of the way that we, ways that we in the church can be a witness to the gospel, the truth of God's saving grace through Jesus uh, to the world around us is to delight in their gifts. And, uh, and I think that was on display yesterday. As, as we were a blessing to them, they were a blessing to us. Another thing that I just would uh, highlight is, there's, uh, is that a, a friend of ours who's an artist in the area named Neil Shigley, um, uh, he, he did some art for us. We actually commissioned him to do uh, a, a piece that we used to use as our, uh, our, our um, logo, and we may bring that back uh, sometime soon. He's also the artist that you may be familiar with. He painted the uh, murals on the uh, 94 freeway out there, Martin Luther King, the three panels as you pass by it on the freeway. Uh, He has an art show uh, going on that just opened yesterday. We went down and and saw it. He, uh, one of his main uh, works is wood carvings that he then uses to uh, ink stamp, large scale ink stamps. Uh, and he has highlighted a number of people who are homeless in the area in these, uh, in these ink stamps. And so you've, you can see the, the brochure on the back. Uh, and this is open to the public. He's got openings to Thursday, 11 to 4. I want to encourage you to go down and see that as a way of uh, blessing him. But also he, who as far as I know is not a, a Christian, but is, is raising awareness, is showing um, that the image of God exists in these, uh, mostly all of them are men who are homeless, uh, who he's depicted, uh, who each have uh, some type of, of story, uh, and, uh, and some of um, whom know the Lord and some who don't, but there is a, a great need uh, to serve those who um, have been cast out by society whether it's by their own doing or the doings of others or a combination of both, which is usually the case. Well, let me pray, and then uh, we'll turn and look to our passage today. First John chapter 3 is where we'll, we'll be looking at. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this uh, gathering. 
that you've set aside this day one and seven to be a day of rest and worship. Father, would you help us to find rest today in our worship of you? Remind us of where you have picked up the burden and carried it for us. And Father, equip us that we would find our place of kingdom work and be fulfilled in it even even as it is exhausting oftentimes. Feed us with your word today, Lord, that we would see wonderful things and be strengthened by the power of it feeding us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in 1 John chapter 3. We're going to begin uh, with verse 1 that we read last week, 1 through 4, and then continue on to read through verse 10 and the focus on the passage as a whole. It's kind of a burdensome passage. You read it, and at first glance, it seems like it's saying, look, if you're not doing the right thing, you're not actually a Christian. And I want us to read it that way and feel some of the tension as we read it, but then also be reminded today of the truth of the gospel, because the truth of the gospel makes this a a livable passage. It makes it so that we can understand that God's love for us as his children is not conditioned on our righteousness. Rather, it's the other way around. God's calling us to be his children frees us to live in righteousness. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. There is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as He is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident Who are the children of God? And who are the children of the devil? 
Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is God's word for us. Amen. Well, I'll date myself in this sermon. A couple of references. I'll start with this. Anybody remember the movie entitled Do the Right Thing by the director Spike Lee? I don't remember that I even saw the whole movie. I remember seeing parts of it. And it's not one that I would necessarily recommend everybody go out and see, but the gist of this movie essentially comes down to this, that even when people want to do the right thing, it's, it's tough to do the right thing. The Apostle Paul makes an interesting statement in his letter to the church in Rome. He says, look, I know the right thing to do, but even when I desire to do the right thing, I find myself not doing it. When you read a passage like this, it's easy to focus on this statement. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. John here is making a very clear distinction between those who are children of God and those who are children of the devil. There's no gray area in this. No place where we want to sit, where our, our, our world around us is very comfortable oftentimes sitting in the gray area between. In the area that we know we live, we know we don't do everything that we want to do, much less everything we know that God wants us to do. And yet, we don't find ourselves in the place of saying, I'm the son of the devil. This is a very uncomfortable statement to me. I'm the son of the devil because I don't do everything that God wants me to do. John has been making these kinds of black and white distinctions all throughout his letter. He talks about those who are children of uh, the darkness and children of the light or who are in the darkness who are in the light, those who are in Christ, and those who are in the world. He's not afraid to draw some lines of demarcation that we are that make us really uncomfortable. I mean, you just look at the art around us. Look at movies, for example, but also books that constantly wrestle with this question that Spike Lee wrestled with a number of years ago. And that is, the things that we want to do are the things that we don't want to do. I want to think that I'm a better person than what my life really bears out. I want to look at this passage and understand this passage in three kind of rough divisions today that will help us to answer this question, does God still love us even when we are in that area in between? Does God still love us even when we find ourselves in that area in between? First thing I want us to see here, focus on, is this division. Either you're a child of God or you're a child of the devil. The second thing we'll look at is uh, the, the, the difficult test that he presents. It says, children of God, do the right thing. Are you doing the right thing? How do we understand this difficult test? The third thing, 
third thing that I think is perhaps the most easy to miss in this whole passage is the provision that God gives. The provision that God gives, which is very prominent there, but I would suspect that if I don't tell you right now what it is, most of us can't even think about what the provision is. It's actually two provisions that are spelled out. We'll come back to that at the end. Let's start. Let's start with this bold statement of division. We've been looking back at uh, other parts of the gospel message because John, in what seems like a fairly simple and straightforward letter, keeps making allusions back to his gospel, the gospel of John, and also to other gospels. Jesus is speaking to a group of people. Some are Pharisees. Pharisees, by the way, are people who did the right thing most of the time. They were really good at doing the right thing. At least most people thought that they were really good at doing the right thing. They themselves thought that they were really good at doing the right thing. They were not a political party. They weren't even leaders of the temple. They weren't elected. They weren't in positions of power. They just took the word of God seriously and they tried to follow all of his laws down to a T. And so people looked at them and they said, wow, they have their life together. Now, Jesus, of course, gets into a number of arguments with the Pharisees. The Pharisees aren't too happy with the type of teaching that Jesus does. Perhaps there are other people there in this scene because Jesus here is in the temple complex, a number of buildings, the one main building, but a number of other buildings that sit on top of the temple mount, this massive structure in Jerusalem, and he's there and teaching. And he teaches some things that are difficult to understand. He says, look, I'm going away and you will seek me and you, uh, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews... Pharisees and other Jews said, is he going to kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And Jesus said to them, no, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus says some other things. I don't have time to go into the whole thing. But then he says, look, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Pharisees answered him and said, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Discussion goes on. And they insist, we are Abraham's children. And Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. 
But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. And Jesus eventually tells them, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Now this is a fascinating story, isn't it? I mean, first, John isn't making this distinction. Jesus was the one who first made this distinction. Calling some people the children of the devil and others, uh, presumably, who follow Christ, the children of God. It's interesting for another reason, and that is that John, or Jesus, says, look, you're not offspring of Abraham. You've never, we, and they say, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Now, this is a curious statement because I would say everyone in here, whether you know the biblical story or not, knows enough to know that the children of Abraham... Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons. One of the sons, Joseph, was sold into slavery in Egypt. The rest of the children went there when a famine came up. Joseph rescues his family. They enjoy life in Egypt for a little while. But what happens to them, of course, they become ultimately too numerous for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to control. And he makes them slaves. How quickly we forget, like the Pharisees did, that they had been slaves in Egypt. They had been slaves just as we have been slaves. Jesus said, you are slaves to sin if you have not believed my words. Very clear message. Unless you believe my words that I have come to save you, unless you come after me and follow me, you are slaves to sin and children of the devil. Now the devil, it's a generous statement to call anybody a child of the devil because the devil doesn't treat anyone like a child deserves to be treated. The devil treats people like slaves. John's been talking about the devil's work up up until this in the first uh, this this first letter of his. He says, "Look, the, the devil has been lying from the beginning. How do you know the devil is opening his mouth or lying is when he's opening his mouth, of course. The devil is a liar and he treats you as slaves." And whether we know it or believe it or not, like these Pharisees, if we don't know God through Christ, we are children of this lie. We're children of the devil himself. We're slaves to sin apart from God's love. Now it's kind of John to start out this section by reminding us and his listeners then 
see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Why even put this language in the Bible? I mean, I'm going to suggest to you in a minute that God is far more gracious than we would ever believe, and that in fact we are made righteous by Christ when we believe in Him, and it's not up to our works for that. But why even put this kind of language in the Bible? And I think that it's very clear that oftentimes we need this type of black and white language to waken our sleepy souls to action. Because when things are comfortable, when we don't seem to have any needs, when we aren't aware of our own hunger, we slip into a a spiritual coma and forget that we ever had any kind of need for God's salvation. Jesus talks about how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the point is clear that when our physical needs are being met, when we have no perceived or or felt needs, that we, we enter into a state of sleepy souls. But the reality is, that apart from Christ's saving work, apart from righteousness, we are the children of the devil. We are obedient to his commands. Whether we admit it or not, we are following his instructions. Now, brings us to our second point, and that is this difficult test this challenge of identifying, all right, so who are actually these children? Because we know from reading this letter earlier that some people who had been in the room with them, in the hall with them, sitting under the apostles' teaching, have now left and rejected the faith. And so can we be sure of our own faith? Can we be sure of our own calling as children of God? How can we be sure? And John says these uncomfortable words, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Whoever practices sinning is of the devil. Now, I think we need to start by even just addressing these terms. What is righteousness what is sin i mean for many of us we carry the baggage maybe some of you are still here the baggage of identifying sin with fun sin is when we get off work and we head out and we enjoy life work is when we endure all the things we have to so that we can have money to go out and sin after work and that that's the picture that is in most of our heads, so ingrained, and that's repeated over and over in various points around us in the culture around us. Righteousness, on the other hand, is viewed and paired oftentimes with the concept of self-righteousness. Listening to a sermon that Tim Keller preached back in 95, he mentioned the Spike Lee movie, and also he mentioned another movie that had just come out, the Brady Bunch movie. Now, I know these are 
long time ago, and they're probably irrelevant for most of us, because most of us haven't even seen either of these movies. Keller makes this point about the Brady Bunch movie, which he was careful to point out that he hadn't seen, and I will also say that I, pro I don't think I've seen it, and like him, I wouldn't admit it if I had. But he says, you know, this Brady Bunch movie came out in the 1990s, and the Brady Bunch, I think, was in the 70s and early 80s. And the, the whole point of the movie was the Brady Bunch now was living in the 90s in a whole time where they were oblivious to the issues of the 90s. They were still caught up in their seven, late 70s, early 80s TV world of perfect leave-it-to-beaver kind of family life. And so... Jan, or Marsha or Jan or one of the two was oblivious to the woman who had a lesbian crush on her. And the other kids were arguing over some petty little family issue when there were uh, people uh, who were facing cancer or other serious life issues out around them. And, and Keller makes this interesting point. He says, look, the Brady Bunch, the Brady family was living this seemingly idealistic life that no one would possibly want to live. Right? I mean, who wants to be the Brady Bunch? No one. Even though they weren't doing anything wrong, who wants to be the Brady Bunch? He says, this is, this is a problem for us in our culture today because we don't have a picture of what we want to be especially for Christians, but even more so for people who are outside the church who assume that as Christians we want to be the Brady Bunch. And I think John, in this letter, gives us a really helpful corrective by saying, look, righteousness, righteousness is love. Righteousness is considering the needs of others more important than your own. Righteousness is living like Jesus did who was willing to lay down his life for his friends. Righteousness is simply a legal term. We don't hear it in the courts anymore because it's fallen so out of favor in all of society is so equated with self-righteousness. But to be declared righteous is simply the same almost identical as being declared innocent. Not guilty of doing something that harms another person or even harms yourself. <clears throat> it's significant that God uses this term because that's what he says of us. If somebody believes in Christ, when somebody believes in Christ, the verdict that comes from God changes from guilty of sin, selfishness, unloving acts toward one another to innocent and righteous. And even another term that's loaded, holy, made right. Holy is somebody who is made righteous, who is set apart, moved from guilty to innocent. And John's picture of righteousness as love and sin as hate 
helps us make sense of why God gave us his commands. Why God set up these rules. And it moves the fun out of just the nighttime and it moves it into the day. It means we're freed to even sometimes enjoy our work, but even more than that, we're freed to love and to serve others, to live our life in a way that is giving instead of taking. I'm going to get ahead of myself a little bit, and we're going to visit this more next week, because right after this, John goes into this interesting picture of two brothers, Cain and Abel. He says Cain murdered his brother. And why did he murder his brother? It was because Cain's own actions were wicked. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that when somebody else sins against you, when somebody else does something wrong, using that terminology, when somebody else sins against you, you you get upset. Right? Say, oh, I didn't deserve that. Why is that person doing that to me? I'm so frustrated with this person. But I I wonder, and I'll even suggest, that what troubles us even more than other people's sins is when we don't live up to our own expectations. What troubles us even more than other people's sins is when we don't live up to our own expectations. But in other terms, when somebody around who's close to us dies, sometimes what makes us weep most over the lost loved one isn't that we'll never get to see them again, but our own guilt over how we won't be able to show them the love that we always intended to show them. What rose up in Cain's heart is the same thing that rises up in so many of our hearts is that our own wickedness causes us to turn inward and focus on our own actions instead of being freed to love others. And in fact, this was exactly the problem that the Pharisees ran into where they were so concerned with keeping every letter of the law, every jot and tittle of the law, that all they could think about was themselves. All they could think about was themselves. Do you ever think about this? That some of the time, in an effort to be righteous and to do everything perfect, it actually consumes more of our time and attention that we would do better to spend with other people. That's not a way of justifying sin. If you see that as a way of justifying sin, you've seen the whole thing wrong, right? But if you think about life as an opportunity to love, then all of those details that you're so concerned about pale in comparison to the bigger picture the larger call of loving one another. Now when you read this challenge, those practicing righteousness, you see that our failings 
our failings ultimately of loving others. John ends his, this passage that we read by saying this. This is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, it still doesn't let all of us off the hook. If anything, we probably all feel more on the hook now than we did before, right? Because how many of us have not failed to love others? How many of us have not regretted loving others that we've lost? And for that, we need to turn to the words of assurance that are in this passage, and that is the third point, and that is the important provision that God gives us. May have read right over this. But John has been talking about the appearing of Christ. You remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the appearing of Christ and whether that was talking about an event that happened in AD 70 or an event that's still future. When Christ appears, we read today. Or perhaps we said that it, when all this stuff appears, when it appears. We won't revisit that. But now we change tenses. And in verse 5 we read, You know that Christ appeared to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. And then again, in verse 9, Sorry, end of verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Notice both these are in past tense, right? Christ has appeared. No distinction, no question about this. When Christ appeared, he did so for two purposes. And the first one is to take away sin. And the second one is to destroy the work of the devil. Now the truth of the gospel is that anyone who has believed in Christ, anyone who has believed, like John has explained, that he came in the flesh, and that he died for the sins of the world, and that he is God himself, and that he is powerful over sin, anyone who believes that, Christ has taken away his sin. Past, present, and future. You say, well, how do you know that it's future as well? It sounds to me like he's saying, once you're in Christ, no more sin. Well, if that was the case, then John would not have said back in chapter 1, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. You say, okay, that still sounds like it's past. Of course we all have sinned, but we're talking about now going forward after we've believed. And he goes on in chapter 2, verse 1 to say, My little children, look, I have a real purpose in writing to you. I'm writing to you so that you will not sin. So that you will not take sin lightly. So that you will not think that when you sin, it's no big deal. Because it is a big deal. Sin is lawlessness. Sin 
says that you do not understand the love that God has given to you. But, he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a counselor, a lawyer, who stands before God, knowing the law perfectly, because he fulfilled all the law, because even before he fulfilled all the law and lived up to all the laws, he authored the laws with God the Father. Who better to know the law than Jesus? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now you can't argue that that leaves open the door for future sin. And that all of us continue to sin. But here's the bigger problem than the sin. The bigger problem than the actions are our desires. Do we desire to love or are we fairly content, more or less at some times, to protect our own interests? You can come off as a pretty good person like the Pharisees did even appearing to love others while you are primarily still working to protect your own interests. And look, I know the temptations as well as you do of money that's short, of relationships that are difficult, of work that is grudgingly slow and seems to make no progress at times, of our best efforts falling on hard ground and not bearing any fruit. John wants us to know that Jesus has loved us and given us these instructions to love so that we don't grow cold ourselves and our heart become the hard ground where God's seed can't take root. John says, look, If God's seed abides in you, you can't keep on sinning because you've been born of God. Now, God's seed is this deep picture that goes all the way back to Genesis in the Bible. And seeds are powerful things that grow into either large trees that bear fruit or sometimes pesky vines that kill out other things and weeds. God's seed here is His righteousness that He's put in you that was Christ. Something external to you that He has put in you that can allow you to love other people because you're not consumed with your own needs. The biggest one being your standing with God. It says, look, you are God's children deeply loved. If you know that, you can love other people. And these are the two very points that he makes. Look, Jesus has taken the sin right out of you and he's put his righteous seed in you. But he's also done one other thing. He's destroyed the work of the devil on your behalf. 
and on behalf of the world. He's destroyed the work of the devil. Now, one way to look at this, well, let me introduce it with a little bit of another story, and that is referencing a, a, a famous mathematician and philosopher named Blaise Pascal. Now, we're going back a couple hundred years here to Blaise Pascal, maybe more than that. And Blaise Pascal was born in France in a time where philosophy was all the rage and where it was becoming popular among philosophers to depart from a belief in God. He was brilliant. In fact, he died at the age of 37, having already made his mark both in philosophy and science. As a child, I don't know if he was raised in the church or not, but he did not believe in Christ. He wasn't a Christian. But at some point in his life, as an adult, he started to wrestle with these deeper questions of, is Christianity true? And he became a Christian there in a largely secularized France. And I bring up Pascal because Pascal was beginning to develop an apologetic and a reason to believe in God. And his apologetic went something like this. It was called the, the wager. He said, look, imagine yourself at a gambling table and there are essentially two boxes on, on the table that you can bet on. He says, the one box is there is no God. And Christ was simply a, a man. The other box is that God exists and Christ is the Messiah. He says, look, if you bet on the first and it turns out to be true, you have eternal life. If you bet on the first and it turns out to be false, you largely led a good life in this life and you didn't lose that much. On the contrary, if you bet on the box that God does not exist and that Jesus is not the Christ, then what you'll do is you'll store up all of your treasures. Now you will gather as many pleasurable experiences. Now you will maximize your joy, maximize your happiness. Now... Maybe some of that will involve other people because there is earthly fulfillment in relationship, whether you're a follower of Christ or not. And if it turns out to be that, to be that God does not exist, you've maximized your life. But if it turns out that God does exist, the penalty is eternal separation from God. Eternal separation from God. Now, there are gaps, story gaps in this apologetic as there are in every human apologetic. Ultimately, when it comes down to it, it is the story of the gospel that is the most effective picture, illustration. All illustrations, all apologetics fall short at some point, and you can pick out the, the shortcomings in that. But you still have to ask that honest question, which of these wagers, do you have more to lose if you get it wrong? Now, why do I bring up Pascal's wager? And it's because of this simple point. Jesus has defeated the devil. 
the devil still exists. But the devil is sitting across from you on that gambling table, constantly offering a bluff. Constantly speaking words to you that make it seem like he has a far better hand than he really has. He's constantly lying, bluffing to try to influence your wager. But Jesus is saying, I have paid the penalty of your sin on your behalf. More than that, the cards have been shown. The wager is already open. It's not even a mystery even more. It's been revealed. It's been made manifest. Christ has come and the devil's game is up. If you believe in Christ, put your wager on the right square. And the problem is that a lot of us are putting our wager in the green space that isn't even a square to be bet on. In the gray space between belief and unbelief that we think is some kind of insurance just in case. And so we maximize our pleasure now and we think that we have our bases covered just in case this all turns out to be true. John says, look, if you're not living in love, if your desires are not being transformed more and more every day, if the seed isn't growing, look, seeds don't grow into trees overnight. But if the seed isn't growing and making progress over time, some of the time it falls back in winter and then it grows more in the summer, if the seed isn't growing, then your desires, your desires may not be for the right things. Of course it's tough to do the right thing. But Jesus comes in and changes our desires when he puts his righteous seed in us. Of course it's tough to do the right thing. But when we hear the truth about the devil and we understand his lies to be bluffs, we are better equipped to make the right wager. Now, just one more word in closing, and that is this word about what we ought to conclude about one another, and even about ourselves. And John, like all the other apostles when they're writing these letters, and the writers of the Bible are more hopeful than they sometimes sound. Read my children as being, look, I am sure of better things for you. But I still need to remind you of the need to live righteously, to pursue it. John Calvin himself, right, the cold Calvinist, predestination Calvinist, he said this in his commentary on 1 John. We ought not rashly to conclude that anyone has brought on himself the judgment of eternal death. On the contrary, love should dispose us to hope well. 
John Calvin has been misunderstood and presented in a, a caricatured format far too often. In fact, he lived his life disposed to hope well of others and to love others, all the while proclaiming the truth. Even of yourself, don't rashly conclude that you have brought on yourself the judgment of God. If you are sitting in this room today, then the Spirit of God is at work in your life. If you have felt the prick of consciousness, conscious of your conscience even a little bit this week, then the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, cutting away the hardness and making room for the seed to grow into righteousness. The words we read earlier to open our worship from Isaiah were written to a hardened people because God continued to have great hope for those people. And he wrote of that hope over and over and over through the prophets. And John follows along this line of prophets who have hope for God's people. There's good news in the gospel. Jesus wants us to do the right thing. And the only way we can do the right thing is to know how deeply we are loved by him and have been changed by his putting his righteousness in us and taking our sin out of us. It's the only way of salvation. It's his way. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, thank you for this truth today. Thank you for the powerful work that you've done on our behalf, that you have taken away our sin and revealed the devil's hand. To strengthen us to live righteously and to put away the sin that holds our lives back. And may we experience your good joys pleasures in this life and in the life to come. We ask this all in the name of Jesus, our powerful Savior. Amen.